So, good morning. Bit of family fortunes to begin. Here's a question for you. For me to really live, I need blank. Answer that for yourselves. Truthfully. How would you finish that sentence in your heart? Are there things in life that you just have to have? Maybe it's chocolate, or a spouse, or a particular job that you're longing for, a new outfit, friends, respect from other people, letters after your name, money, savings, things, peace and quiet, just a bit of space. Because depending on how we finish that sentence, then, then we shape our lives around that thing that we long for, that we think we really need. Those things that make us tick are what we build our structures around. It's been said that our, our, our idols are seen in our daydreams. So you just let your, your mind free wheel for a bit, and what's the kind of perfect life that you paint for yourself? What do we long for and what do those things say about us? What matters for us? Our idols are seen in our daydreams, but it's been said as well that our idols are seen in our nightmares. So let me ask you another question. Finish this sentence. I get really angry when... Blank. What makes you irate? makes you really cross. I don't mean lack of sleep or food or hormones, and those things might well play a part in our moods, but, but what situations do you just kind of lose it in? Suddenly, you were fine, but now you're really mad. Something has, has changed you. Maybe you're a slow boiler, and so grumpily afterwards, you replay the situation again and again and again in your minds. You can't let go of it. Something has made you very angry. Because often in our anger, again, we see those things that really matter to us. We see what our our hearts are shaped around. Suddenly it becomes apparent that we're not in control of the situation, and so that makes us very angry because we want to be in control. We we have to be in control. Or or you let me down and you ignore me, uh, and that makes me really angry because I need your friendship and your respect. I make a stupid financial decision. I lose a stack of money. And I'm really angry because I just need that cushion of savings to make me feel secure. It'll vary for each of us. Maybe it is those grades that we're longing for, those letters after our name, or that job, or that spouse, or that dream. Kids that are perfect. And so when those things are gone, or we realise that our kids aren't perfect, then we get really angry. And they're painful, but they're great questions to ask whether we would call ourselves Christians or not. Maybe we're just here looking in on things. What is it that really matters to you in life? Why is your life shaped the way it is? Will those things ultimately, truly satisfy you? And that matters for us this morning, I think, in Proverbs 2. 
Because this is a chapter that asks us what we pursue in life. At root, what do you run after? If you were here last week, you remember that we're thinking about wisdom in our our fast-moving, information-bombarding, Twitter-style world where we've got things flying at us. We're trying as best we can over the summer to slow down and to think about true wisdom. Because when you're living in that kind of world where things are just bombarded at you the whole time, it's as if we're, we said, it's as if we're jet skiing over the top of the information, trying to make the best life that we can out of the information that we've got. And yet we need to scuba dive, to slow down, to dig deep into what God has said, to put the brakes on, to, to learn to be wise. And as the children were learning, we said that Solomon was wise, not because he knew it all, but because he knew the one who made it all. He understands how the world works. And as Pat was saying, this wisdom isn't just seen in how we think, but it's seen in our lives. There's evidence. There's fruit for people looking in at how you live. And we said as well last week, it means that we don't go down these dead ends We don't listen to wrong voices, but we don't as well listen to the right voice, but not really hear. God's word just washes over us. And so my job each week as a preacher is not to deliver you an eloquent, lofty, clever, provocative and memorable sermon. That is not hearing the word of God. Hearing the word of God means that we do it. That's when we know we've really heard it. When the fire alarm goes off, we know we've heard it because we've left the building. It's not because we've taken notes on it. And as the kids were learning as well, the last bit of the story from last week is that this fear of the Lord is foundational. Verse 7, it was the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. It shows our humility before him. We put our egos and our agendas and our theories aside and we say, Lord, make us wise. Teach us. So chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's striking in chapter 2 because the fear of the Lord is the end of our pursuit of wisdom. Did you see that in verses 5 and 6 as UEA read it for us? then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So then our first point for this morning, verses 1 to 11, is this. Pursue wisdom and you receive God. Pursue wisdom and you receive God. Now, there's this um, religious analogy, a metaphor that's taught in schools at the moment. Uh, and it goes, a, it's pictures an elephant. It goes a bit like this. There's this narrator for the story, and he describes to you, you've got this, these blind people with this elephant in the middle, and they're all kind of feeling and investigating this elephant, putting their hands on it, trying to work out what it is. And, and one feels the trunk and says, ah, this is, a, this is a snake. This creature is like a snake. And another one feels a leg and says, no, 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 it's, this is more tree-like. And someone else grabs a tail and says, no, no, this is sort of ropey. And somebody else, hands on side, oh, this is a wall. 
And the story goes, well, well, this kind of picture is a bit like world religions. So we're all sort of fumbling around in the dark, all trying to work out what God is like. And we all get a bit of it, but not the whole picture. And of course, that means, well, we can all get on because we're all right and, and nobody's right. Unless we're the narrator. Who is this shady guy who seems to know everything? He seems to know that everybody else is blind, but he's not. He, he knows it's an elephant. It's almost as if there's a hidden agenda somewhere going on. But the thing to note here is that the people are active, but the elephant is passive. But what if God is not passive? What if God speaks? What if God takes on flesh and comes to the earth and comes to live with us? Comes to reveal to us what God is like for those who are humbly seeking him, for those who are looking for true wisdom. What if God reveals himself? Because that seems to be what we have in the passage, that people who are actively looking finally will get him. We are to be active seekers. We are to be those who pursue wisdom. If you remember last time, um, wisdom was pictured as, as a woman in the marketplace, calling out, clamouring to be heard. The problem was not the wisdom... The problem was us and our simple hearts. But this time, the emphasis has changed. We are to be those who clamour for wisdom. We are not to be complacent. So look at the language with me in verses kind of one through to four. Accept my words. Store up my commands within you. Turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as hidden treasure. Wisdom's not just going to fall into our laps. We can't just put the book under the pillow at night and suddenly it appears there in the morning. Or we can't sort of download it matrix style into our minds. It'd be great if we could. But wisdom is something we need to pursue, look for, run after. Even Solomon, who, as you remember, was the wise author of this book, he prays to God for wisdom, but it seems he still studies. He's not sort of magically an expert in botany and zoology. He thinks he's an academic. Because notice that little word there in verse 1, the third word, if. If. If we want to be scuba divers, if we want to swim down into God's truth, rather than jet skiers who skate over the top, we need to put the effort in. We're simple. We don't like instruction. We don't like discipline. And so to to get wisdom, we actively pursue it. It doesn't make us legalistic. It doesn't make us kind of religious in that negative sense that people use it now. It doesn't mean we're into works righteousness. The Christian life is hard work. We're to pursue wisdom. One of the, um, the most fascinating Christian books that I've read recently, I was going to bring it and wave it at you, but I've forgotten. Um, it's by a man called Ellis Potter, and it's, it's called Three Theories of Everything. And it's fascinating because he is a man who asks questions. He describes himself, like he says... He's someone who never grew up. 
He says, children want to know how far is far and how small is small. He says, I'm still asking these questions about life itself. I want to know what reality looks like when you think down to the bottom and out to the edges. And he grew up in church. But he left. He left because people would not take his questions seriously. He was told to trust like a little child, to to pray for more faith, to to just kind of back off with the questions for a bit. And so, disenamored with the church, as you would be, he pursues various other things. At university, he was in the, you forgive me for my pronunciation, but he was in the uh, Rosicrucian Society, uh, the Self-Realisation Fellowship of the Pramahansa Yogananda, before finally he, he settles as a Zen Buddhist, and he becomes a Zen Buddhist monk. And yet eventually... He was still asking his questions. He came back to faith in Christ. Because in his search for wisdom, in his questions, ultimately he is led to the Trinitarian God of the Bible. The foundation for reality. And only this God was able to satisfy him and answer his questions. Ellis Potter, Three Theories of Everything. A man who was searching looking for wisdom. And if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You see, true wisdom is not academic. It's spiritual. It doesn't just impact your mind and how you think, it impacts your life and how you live. It leads you, verse 5, to the knowledge of God, which is not just knowing about God. It's not being an expert on God as a topic. It's knowing him. It's being friends with him. The fear of the Lord is not just the starting point. It's the goal at the end. He is the treasure that we find. And once we know him, then everything changes. So our lives change. And so verse 9 to 11, you've got, again, like last week's understanding of what is right and just and fair, and and wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul, which leads to, verse 11, protection and guarding in life. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you turn it on its head, you see unwise actions... Well, that that leads to problems. They lead to messy lives, to mistakes, to suffering. Well, so the opposite is true. A wise life leads to guarding. But here's the thing. We fall and we fail. And we say, I'll never do that again. And we do. And we slip into these patterns that repeat again and again and we slide into sin and and we get it wrong and regret is there and we're not wise. But you know, if you're a Christian here this morning, you can be confident because of God's wisdom, because you are in Christ. He was the truly perfect one. He was the one greater than Solomon who came. The one with the perfectly shaped character. The one with incredible insight. Jesus is God's wisdom. And when we trust him, 
when we trust his glorious, wise work in the cross, then our foolishness is wiped away. We're forgiven. Maybe you're here and you aren't a Christian. And yet you know something of that foolishness. You can look back and you can see that the skeletons in the closet and the mistakes that you've made. And it's as if you're drowning. And whatever you do, you're just finding yourself further and further and further away from where you want to be and from who you are. I'd urge you to grab onto that gospel for yourselves. To cling on to Jesus' death for you. It's, it's as if God throws you a life jacket and says, hold on to it and keep holding on to it. And that is wise living. And don't give it up. And don't let it go. At times you might think it's foolish, but trust me. Trust me. And if you're a Christian already and you look back and you think, I am a fool, as we all do. Well, take comfort in verse 10. Because in verse 10 you can see that God can change you. One writer has put it like this. He says, God is able to give your heart a new instinct for wisdom. Do you want to be a better husband? Do you want to be wiser with your money and your spending? Do you want to know how much TV to watch or not watch? You don't need someone to beat you down with guilt and pressure. You don't need five easy steps for this or seven surefire principles for that. You need a new heart, a new character. You need to be awakened from within. And God is saying, if you will seek me, well, wisdom will come into your heart. So first point, pursue wisdom and you will end up receiving God. Second point, it turns out that when we pursue wisdom and receive God, then with God comes protection. Verse 12 to 22, receive God, receive protection. In a messy, broken, foolish, difficult world, he looks after his people. And it's interesting, it's protection particularly from words. So God has made a world in which words have power. Power to bring life. The, the Bible starts with God speaking and universes are created. And there's separation and there's order brought out of chaos. And his words are words to be listened to and trusted and obeyed. Words to build up, words to encourage. In verse 1 of our chapter here, words to bring wisdom, words that change people's lives. That, that little five-minute conversation that you have with that person can, can change their life forever. Words can be so powerful. And God's words are always good. Verse 6, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. But just as with last week, And because people have a hold over us, we need protection from people's words. From blind alleys and from traps that can ensnare us and ruin us. 
And there are two particular dangers he outlines, verse 12 to 15. You've got these uh, perverse speaking men. And verse 16 to 19, seductive speaking women. So firstly, 12 to 15, perverse speaking men. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Their words and their ways can't be trusted. Perverse here means to turn against. It's a word that talks about twisting meanings. So we can't depend on them. We can't depend on what they say. But actually, says Solomon, don't just listen to them. Look at them. Because again, you can see it being worked out in their lives, the fruit of their living, the paths that they tread. We might call them devious or, or sneaky. And it's not just being a bit naughty. They delight or rejoice in doing bad things. They love evil. Perhaps think of that person in the office and you're just not quite sure if you can trust them. Things just don't quite stack up when they say stuff to you. They're just a bit economical with the truth or their excuses seem far-fetched when they get it wrong. They're not willing to claim culpability if they make mistakes. Or you overhear them being dishonest with clients. And so you think, are they going to be dishonest with me? Or dishonest with expenses? So are they dishonest with all of life? Maybe there's people at school who, who kind of seem alluring and tempting and you'd quite like to hang around with them, but you're just not quite sure whether it makes sense, whether they're the sort of people to be associated with. Well, says Solomon, if, if you're wise, you'll be saved from them. You won't associate with them. You, you will avoid them. Striking, isn't it, how, how powerful words are. It's a slight aside, but as people who love the God of truth, we must be people who love truthful words. How easily we can be sort of massaged when we're in a tight spot such that we don't quite say what's true and we make excuses. Or we just want to take the credit for something somebody else has done. And suddenly that then grows and we're shaped and moulded by this lack of truth. So be the kind of person that people know they can trust. Don't be a perverse speaker. Be honest. Second one, verse 16 to 19, these seductive speaking women. It's a topic we'll see a number of times over the summer. Here we have a woman who is seeking to seduce us. Verse 16. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her past to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. And there's a couple of things on those verses there. Firstly, this is a warning for everyone. It's a warning for he who is being warned us as the readers, the learners, but also she herself seems to be a married person who who is part or was part of the people of God. Verse 17, she ignored the covenant she made before God. 
She, she married young. And she's got balls. Gone off with other people. Folk who got married a while ago, whose marriages are into decades now. Be careful. Do not be fooled. You are not immune. Perhaps it's not turned out as you hoped it would. You realise your spouse still annoys you. They've not changed as you hoped they would. The pressures of middle-aged living, they're harder than expected. Maybe the grass is just greener. Well, be careful. Be careful. I was reading some um, figures yesterday that say 74% of men and 68% of women would have an affair if they knew they would never be found out. That if they knew it would always be secret. Um, For men and women, it's about three quarters you would have an affair. Which is why the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Because he knows. Because you've made a covenant with him before him. Be wise. And notice too where it ends up, secondly, verse 18 to 19. This intimacy leads to death. Now, in the Old Testament, the word death often means a realm in conflict with life. At times it's used as a sort of shorthand way of describing the brokenness of the world out of relationship with the God who made it. I take it it's why at the start of the Bible in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve's rebellion, God says, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But they don't die, physically. Physical death is for later. Now they are out of relationship, it seems, with the God who made them. Missing out on true life. They're simply existing in the world because the world is now ruined. And she's so seductive. She promises us what we want. Just like all sin, no doubt she sounds and looks and smells so enticing. Would it really matter that much? Just a bit of fun. No one would find out. It could be our little secret. Do you not like me? She seems so right. But in fact, she's very dangerous. Which is the problem with sin. We enjoy it. It's tempting and it's alluring and it's appealing. And at the time, we forget the consequences. We forget the outworking. But finally, it robs us of life. So watch out for the voices. Watch out for what they say to us. For, for people who promise you much and yet do you harm. Be wise. Avoid them. But wisdom is more than just avoiding sin. At the end of the chapter we see it's going on good paths. Wisdom escorts us into life. It brings real life. Verse 20, thus you will walk in the ways of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. It's paths with others. This isn't a solo journey. We journey together. 
with other good or righteous or upright or blameless people, as he describes them. Wisdom is a corporate project. We're not to be isolated and individualistic. This is church. This is why we need each other, to help each other to be wise. And notice, too, the the mention of the land there. This was the land, remember, that God had promised to Abraham that he said he would provide. Ultimately and finally for us, that is the new heavens and the new earth with all the people of God from all eternity and we will live with him forever in perfect relationship. But for now, I take it that is together as we abide in Christ. In a sense, he is our land as we are joined to him, as we are seated with him in the heavenlies. And Jesus said in John 15, if you remain in me, And my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. There's a challenge when he says, you have to remain in me, to abide in me. Hold on to the life jacket. Keep clinging on. Trust him, build on him, love him, treasure him. And as you do that, you'll bear fruit in your lives. But as well as the challenge from Jesus, there's the encouragement to ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So in our foolishness, as we scroll through our diary for the week ahead, what do we ask for? To be those who remain in him. Like Solomon, will we ask for wisdom? Wise living? Maybe it's standing firm against the temptations of the perverse man and the seducing woman. Maybe verse 3 and 4, it's calling aloud for insight and crying aloud for understanding. As you're in Christ, ask him for wisdom. As we finish, I just want to remember one more thing. And that is, us for, that is for us to remember how good God is and how we were made to live his way. Because in, in our foolishness, we can sit here this morning and if we're honest, we can think, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure it's worth it. We can doubt God. We can doubt the words of Proverbs 2. And when, when push comes to shove in our week, we're just not sure whether his way is the best way. And we say, actually, I'd like to go it alone. I'd like to do it my way. We want to be in control of things. We, we swallow the lie and we say, I think just God's a bit boring. His way is not the way for me. And so we pursue the kind of things that we pursue at the start, that we think they will give us life and meaning and value and purpose. And we forget how good he is and that we were made to live for him. C.S. Lewis famously said this. He said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And when God says to us, Come be wise, we think it's our mum and she's calling us in to do physics homework. And we hate it. And we hide in the bushes because we don't want to come, we don't want to listen. 
But actually, she's calling us to come in because it's a surprise trip with our mates to a theme park for the day. It's brilliant. And God says to us, come and be wise. And we think, does that mean living a sensible and dull and boring and grey life where I just have no fun? No, no, it's brilliant. It's what you were made for. It's the only place you will find true life. It's the only way that we will really live. To live knowing and treasuring the one who made us.